Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and today I'm speaking with Ula Berg, author of Mobile Selves, Race, Migration, and Belonging in Peru and the U.S., published by the New York University Press in 2015. Dr. Berg is trained as an anthropologist and holds the position of associate professor in the departments of Latino and Hispanic Caribbean Studies and anthropology at Rutgers University. Her research and teaching interests include migration, mobility, transnationalism, globalization, media, ritual and performance, and visual anthropology. In particular, her research explores the historical and contemporary processes of ex- and experiences of migration and mobility within Latin America and between Peru and the United States. Hello, Ula, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Thank you so very much, Titi. Great. I was hoping you could begin our conversation today by telling us a little bit about your personal and professional background. Absolutely. So, um, uh, as you already mentioned, uh, I'm a social cultural but also visual anthropologist uh, by training, and I specialize in both in Latin America and in Latino communities uh, in the United States. And I think for a Latino studies scholar, uh, I, I probably have a little bit of an unorthodox background because um, I grew up in Denmark, where I also did my undergraduate and MA work uh, at the University of Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. And I came to the U.S. in 2001, which was just a month after uh, 9-11, to do graduate studies in anthropology at NYU. And I think this this sort of whole moment of my arrival uh, in the U.S., of course, affected my entire outlook uh, on U.S. society, but it also affected the processes of migration that I was studying and the, the kind of subsequent policies governing the movement of people in and out of, of the country, right? And it was also... Um, it also shaped, I think, my uh, uh, my view on Latin American migration, that even though that I 
was born and raised for the first 19 years of my life in Europe, I spent a significant um, amount of time in Latin America. Mm-hmm. Before I even came to the U.S., I didn't come to the U.S. Uh, I came to the U.S. for the first time. I was in my mid-20s, um, and before that, I had spent numerous years in Latin America, so I kind of came late to the U.S., <laughs> as it were. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I should say that 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 is I'm mentioning this, and that is significant because, uh, in a way, that also means that I came to uh, Latino studies somewhat accidentally, I would say, by virtue of following my interlocutors um, across borders from Latin America to the U.S. Because I was already working uh, as an anthropologist, uh, and I had studied at Latin American um, universities. Uh, and then, you know, I, I came to do field work in the United States more or less at the same time as the subjects that I was studying when I came to graduate school. So I, I think that also reflects sort of my, my more hemispheric view, as it were, of Latino studies as encompassing, you know, of course the U.S., but definitely to a great extent uh, um, the home regions that people are migrating from in Latin America. Certainly, no, definitely, and and um, I think that uh, th- that's very fascinating to hear. Uh, you know, both of how you came to the subject matter, but also how that helped you to see uh, and maybe start to envision this project. You know, his- hemispherically, which uh, your your project certainly does. I mean, taking both a transnational look at the experiences of uh, Andean Peruvian migrants, but also it's it's situated in. Um, multiple local sites. Um, can you tell us a mm-hmm. bit more about how the project itself developed? Uh, how it came about? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Well, uh, you know, for for a long time, um, I was interested uh, in the topic of human migration, and probably also, perhaps, as uh, part of my own uh, biography. But I think. You know, human migration, it is one of the most important uh, issues of our time, and it shapes the lives of millions of people, and it also affects the future of, of many more. And I think I, I I decided to write this book, of course, because it, it was the right way of disseminating the work that I had been doing uh, in Peru and also with Andean communities um, in the U.S., uh, but also, I guess, out of a sense of urgency um, about the topic. Uh, the book uh, originally started uh, as a dissertation, but has been then morphed into sort of a very uh, different beast. And I think one of the things that I was pursuing um, was that I was uh, slightly uh, dissatisfied with the way that Latin American migrations have been, have been contextualized, both in my own discipline uh, of anthropology, but also uh, in the U.S. immigration literature because migration is not just about getting from point A to point, point B, obviously, but it's, it's, a, it's this embodied experience um, that occurs in a larger economy of, of signification. And, and also that, ha- that experience has to be validated by all of these larger institutions and and structures of power. And I think in many of the studies uh, uh, in U- the U.S. immigration literature, it, it kind of placed the United States squarely at the center and uh, sort of the site uh, that came to 
create value for mm -hmm. people's experiences, right? I thought of the only context that gave meaning to the migration journey and the process. And, and that, that to me was simply inaccurate. And I saw that in my work because people don't migrate out of nowhere, but they're part of these very dense histories and fabrics of social relations already in their home countries, like that inform their experiences. Um, in very significant ways, a long time before they even arrived uh, to the U.S., right? So that that was, I think, one of my my sort of initial um, motivations. And, of course, also because uh, prior to working on transnational migration and doing fieldwork in the U.S., I was working in Peru, and I was looking at, um, first, uh, the study of rural-to-urban migration, and then also at the impact of transnational migration in home communities in the Andes. And what I saw was that transnational migration, of course, had a very significant impact on local uh, communities and local economy, but it was also almost as if it were sort of like the last stage of a century-long history of mobility, right? That it was mm -hmm. sort of the, a, a last phase, as it were. Um, so it wasn't perhaps that it sort of radically... Uh, transformed these communities, but that it kind of added on to the scale almost, um, and that it allowed for an expansion of, of, of Andean livelihoods. Now, previously, people had migrated from Andean communities to sort of highland cities or maybe to the capital of Lima, but now they were kind of extending that livelihood, right, that mobile livelihood beyond the borders um, of Peru. So I also think that I... I that, that informed uh, my approach, uh, that I approach migration as, as an embodied experience, but also as a sort of a spatial extension uh, of a form of livelihood that, that Andean populations have been engaged in for centuries, right? Great points, yes, and I uh, I appreciate that as a as a historian of the United States, um, as I. Uh, typically, you know, as I teach classes, interact with students. One of the things that I'm most grateful for that uh, migration scholars have brought into, um, uh, I think, the study of American history is is the the transnational perspective that migrants have, and and that scholars like yourself have had to adopt and develop in really trying to understand the social experiences of these people have really helped to destabilize the concept of the nation. You, you talk about mm -hmm. being um, dissatisfied initially with how uh, migration itself was discussed in the literature, particularly in the United States, and that's right because of the the nationalist frame of um, mm -hmm. that shaped a lot of these studies. Right, that viewed um, right. you know the U.S. of course as a land of opportunity, and therefore thereby you know pulling these migrants because of its uh, you know concepts such as freedom and uh, you know mm -hmm. opportunity for social mobility and you know bootstrap mentality, all that stuff. Right, this was the land mm -hmm. where that could uh, thrive and flourish, and and thereby mm -hmm. that. That's how you know migration uh, was understood for so long, and and of mm -hmm. course, and you know, probably through the process of the, the mid to late twentieth century, more probably the, the latter twentieth century, migration scholars really started to contest those notions. You know, looking that is migration from the U.S. outward, and now we're looking at it as you've mentioned from 
you know, what have come to be called sending regions, right, from that perspective yeah. and, and the process of mobility as a historical process, as you mentioned, beginning from rural to urban migrations, whether, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about the 20th, 21st century, even centuries ago, you know, we've, we've this mm-hmm. migration scholars have begun to identify that transnational migration, right, is now kind of like a, as we see it now, kind of one of the culminating or latter extensions of this process of mobility and migration that is very deeply rooted in the human condition and, you know, as a strategy, right, to to survive, absolutely. right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, that, that has been very productive uh, for me in my own research, and also it allows me to connect sort of a, a, a trajectory in Andean studies and in studies of mobility in the Andes, Andes with sort of more broader uh, transnational migration literature. And I should also say another important point that I'm trying to do in the book is because I'm in dialogue with, um, with the transnational migration literature, also... Um, trying to uh, figure out how we could uh, sort of go beyond exactly that framework uh, of the transnational or the national in the transnational because I think even the transnational migration framework um, was sometimes too much focused on the national in the transnational and then ended up somehow reiterating these national origin groups that simultaneously critiqued in the U.S. immigration literature, right? Um, and I think one of the, the, the things that I'm trying to uh, show in the book is that how we can't take membership of national origin groups for granted in the first place, right? Exactly, right. Um, and so um, in the case of Peru, and this is what I'm showing in my book, is that many of um of these uh, migrants of rural uh, and Andean origin who sort of get catapulted into these transnational migration circuits, they are they were never really full citizens in their own countries. Right? Exactly. So, so when they migrate abroad uh, and they migrate to the U.S., one of the sort of main predicaments for many of them is exactly to become members of uh, Peru and of the Peruvian citizenry, right? even though that they are abroad. So it's actually not about the American dream. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's about uh, it's about becoming someone uh, in the context of, of these larger historical processes of membership that encompass mm-hmm. both the, the, the country and the region uh, of origin, right, uh, as well as uh, the United States. Yes, and this is what interests me the most about uh, your book, and and I think the title does a great job of really setting off initially is, you know, the the how the concepts of self and and identity uh, and subjectivity mm-hmm. are all intertwined right within the process of movement and mobility, whether that's within, uh, you know, a nation and across regions, as we're talking about initially here mm-hmm. with Andean migrants, mm-hmm. uh, or even transnationally, that throughout mm-hmm. these processes of movement, people are continually, um, uh, was it rethinking and reimagining themselves and producing themselves in, in new mm-hmm. ways to, right, create, to, to obtain a desirable re- result, right? Yes. 
And um, so your book breaks this up in in three different parts. There's the first part uh, entitled Cosmopolitan Desires is um, more about uh, the, the initial process of, you know, leaving a, a sending region or, you know, leaving, you know, an Andean community. Uh, first, the, you know, how the migrant imagines that and then how mm-hmm. it is experienced. And uh, yeah. in the first chapter, so you, you produce these two uh, examples uh, of uh, – Ines and Dumitila, uh, right, mm-hmm. are two of the women that you study. Can you talk a bit about their experiences and and how they they exemplify what you start to find, what you're you're discussing in the book about both how they imagine um, this experience of migration, what's driving that, and then how their own experiences themselves um, work to start to you know shape their their concept of self and their identity, how that's evolving throughout this process. Yes, uh, absolutely, and thank you for that question. So I think I, I, I took um, the cases of these two women. Um, I had many fascinating uh, cases and testimonies that I could choose from, but I think somehow they came to stand out as emblematic for this desire for migration uh, that many people uh, in the Central Andes and, and in uh, countryside across Latin America and also in northern urban areas, of course, um, they have or that desire for mobility that they have. So, for example, in the case of uh, Ines, um, Ines is uh, a, a woman and a friend that I've known for many, many years since my first um since my first uh, field work in Peru, and I stayed uh, with her family, and I also witnessed sort of her family and the family history being transformed uh, by migration over uh, several generations. Uh, and one of the things that always fascinated me with her and her story was that uh, they had their family home sort of next to this highway that runs through the central highlands from the mining economies of Huancavelica and Ayacucho and then down to the coast of Lima. So so it was really sort of this road um, that connected this area of the highlands with uh, Lima on the coast and with the sort of accompanying notion of the capital and of progress uh, and of getting ahead in life, etc. So a lot of her life evolved around um, uh, the sort of economy of the roadside, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it came out uh, in many conversations uh, with her uh, over the course of the years that I followed her, you know, how in, in strong that uh, desire for mobility was. Uh, and Ines, she was someone who had uh, the possibility for family reunification. Her father had left um, in the late 1970s uh, to the U.S., um, and he was trying to, have been trying for years to uh, to go to the United States through family reunification, but that didn't quite work out. So she also simultaneously applied for a visa and, you know, working all these multiple strategies that many aspiring migrants do. Um, and over the course of a number of years, each time I returned to Peru, you know, I saw her and we would talk about migration and talk about her plans. And then uh, suddenly, uh, one day, she was gone. Or it was not called that suddenly because it had been uh, sort of on the way for um, 
a very long time. Um, so she ended up uh, in Miami um, uh, living uh, with an uncle and with her sister who also had managed uh, to travel. But her arrival in the United States was sort of a... Uh, heartbreaking in many ways because uh, her story, you know, and the early interviews that I had with her had sort of this character of almost an overflow of aspiration, you know. She was so excited and so um, so full of, of um, yeah, of aspirations. That is really the best uh, word for it, I think, but had so many dreams and things that she wanted to do and then sort of the hard reality of arriving uh, in the U.S. of uh, having no paperwork because she overstayed a visa, um, of not being able to uh, find a job, and then later on uh, she um, brought her son uh, to the U.S., and then he also was undocumented, and sort of just trying to make a life happen under some very uh, difficult circumstances. Uh, so she was very um, sort of driven by this notion of salida adelante, right, mm-hmm. of getting ahead. Um, but it turned out that, you know, when she arrived at the U.S., uh, the main sort of bulk of her labor evolved around just getting by, right? Right, uh, right. Like when this, with this aspiration sort of hit um the reality um, of uh, sort of entry-level work in the United States that, that um, you know, many uh, labor migrants undergo, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the other testimony I have there in that first chapter is that of Domitila. And Domitila um, is interesting because she uh, was also living in this sort of larger aspirational economy that that uh, dominated the area uh, at the time that I did my research there with what which was in the first half of the 2000s right um but and she was embedded in this sort of tightly knit family network um of people who were migrating to um to Maryland and Washington DC uh that network or that family network had started with uh, sort of the typical case of a pioneer uh female migrant who migrated as a domestic worker in mm-hmm. the uh, late 1970s also and then for a, a Peruvian diplomatic family and then ended up in Washington, D.C., uh, ended up staying, working for several diplomatic families and then ended up staying um, uh, and bringing uh, a lot of her relatives. Uh, so at the time that I met the pioneering migrant uh, that I call Ahun in the book, she had almost managed to bring like 40 of her nieces and nephews and brothers and sisters right. to the United States. Um, Ines, uh, she was caught up in that um, migration, I know, uh, sorry, not Ines, Domitila was ca- caught up in that migration stream somewhat involuntarily because it was her sister who was supposed to migrate in her place. Right, um, and right. all the arrangements had already been made for her to migrate, but then the sister, uh, the, the younger sister, sort of quote-unquote, quote, deserted, right, that family migration project because mm-hmm. she had a boyfriend and she really didn't want to leave uh, for the United States. And then it was considered that the family was sort of losing out on this 
opportunity for for diversifying their um, their their income, right? So they right. had to send someone, and then that someone became uh, Ines, and she um, uh, became sorry Domitila, right. and she ended up migrating, uh, sort of a little bit against her will, uh, but to help out the family, leaving a child behind. Right, right. Uh, that she then did not see for almost 10 years at, mm-hmm. at this point with these in, in, incredible sort of social and emotional costs, right, right, in order to sort of fit into this family and community-driven migration project. Yes, you know, those are two great case studies, I think, to, to just to open up the book and really highlight two of the, you know, common themes that perhaps, um, you know, underlie um, the decision to migrate for, you know, a number uh, of, of sure. migrants and not just, of course, Andean Peruvians. But so you, you mentioned the first is this um, Ines represents this, the aspirational force that drives, you know, some, mm-hmm. you know, uh, some to migrate this uh, desire to get ahead, as you say, it's salir adelante. Um, mm-hmm. And then you have Domitila, uh, who represents the moral objective, right? Or the, the kind of yeah. um, the moral responsibility, right? As a, a pioneer, she was connected to this lineage, if you will, of migration. This is a a migration that's a strategy, as you mentioned, that allows the family to diversify. It's not only its its earning potential, uh, you know, of course, um, but also its own, you know, social advancement. Its place within the community, mm-hmm. right? I mean, uh, this is fascinating within your work. You, you, and a number of migration scholars con- uh, connect, you know, the um, the the opportunity that this that transnational migration creates for people, not just to get ahead in the way that they are leaving their their home country and making something anew of themselves in the, the the receiving country, this being the United mm-hmm. States, but what that opens the door for their own social advancement and, uh, you know, back home, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, not just in the forms of consumption uh, or even consumerism mm-hmm. and, you know, but uh, in, in their status within the community itself. And, and so this creating this uh, perpetual chain of migration and being part of that, had so much, she felt such a sense of responsibility and acknowledging and understanding how much her family had put into this mm-hmm. process all the time, all the money. As you mentioned, uh, yeah. Domitila couldn't let this pass. I mean, that sense of moral obligation, she could not let all of that work go to waste or, or risk her family's, you know, the value that this was to her family, even though it mm-hmm. meant leaving her child behind. It was just, it was heart wrenching, yeah. you know, to read that. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, just, I think, but a phenomenal case study, uh, both of those, you know, to really highlight those two driving forces, um, that are just two of many perhaps, but very common, um, uh, perhaps, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. And, and thank, thank you for mentioning that also because I feel one of the things that I wanted to do was also to get away of, you know, of the, from, from that notion of the migrant as sort of this individual rational actor, right? Who mm-hmm. only makes Choices based on sort of individual desires, and that you know, especially with Domitila's case, it, it it is sort of a moral predicament, right? It's become mm-hmm. something that she um, has to do in order to uh, reproduce, not just herself uh, as as a sort of a successful migrant subject, but also her family and her sort of close community. Right, and and also as you point out, that it's so much more than just purely economics, you know, and materiality, which I mm-hmm. think is interjected so much 
um, you know, in the discussion of migration and, and both migrants themselves, why they do what they do. Yes, that's a key component of it. This is about survival. But um, for, you know, as you mentioned in, 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 in throughout the book, for these people, it's not their only option. For some of them, yeah. you know, they could stay, you know, they or they could return to uh, Peru and and have a, mm-hmm. you know, a, a good life. Right. And so it's not merely about survival, but it's about the opportunity and, yeah. um, you know, the, this, again, this concept of the self, where they want to be, what they would like to become, and how <laughs> transnational migration, not only again for themselves, the individual, but for their family, for their community, mm-hmm. how all that factors into this decision and the sacrifices that go into, um, you know, mm-hmm. migrating transnationally. Yeah, absolutely. So wonderful. And that's, I mean, that's just the opening of the book. Uh, the, the second chapter, which I was also, again, we're still in, in the process of kind of these, um, right, the fashioning of self as, as mm-hmm. you know, you're leaving or, or just entering into that transnational migra- migratory circuit. Um, mm-hmm. But the second chapter then starts to address, uh, you know, the experience of that migration, um, mm-hmm. the sense of identity as it, it comes through, you know, the, sub- the subjectivity of being a migrant um, and, and having to uh, enter into this process without um you know a with without you know clear um i'm losing my train of thought here i for, I, I apologize but without losing uh or, or without having access to um mm-hmm. you know direct or i hate to say the word uh, you know legitimate forms of obtaining paperwork to do so right so you <laughs> what yeah. we're really getting at is you you start to explain this migrant industry that has developed um that mm-hmm. helps to support uh, migrants who are are looking to migrate transnationally. Many of these have already made mm-hmm. the rural to urban uh, jump and experience, mm-hmm. and now are about to make that that next uh, transition. So, can you talk mm-hmm. a bit more about the migration industry, and particularly again how the fashioning of self uh, intersects with, uh, for example, the process of obtaining certain types of visas? I mean, this was a, a fascinating part of this chapter where you start to connect how. Um, migrant op- entrepreneurs and industry professionals help uh, migrants to uh, really fashion I- an identity that fits uh, the particular use of a visa, whether it's a student visa, you know, an, an artist visa, whatever it may have been. But it's really this sense mm-hmm. of, you know, traveling like a student or traveling like yeah. an artist. So can you talk a bit more about uh, how this chapter really teases that out? Yes, absolutely. I'd be happy to. So the, the chapter kind of built on uh, the argument that I lay out in the introduction of the book, which is you know, that uh, mobility has always shaped uh, Andean livelihoods, but that uh, access to transnational mobility in particular uh, and all the sort of associated capital, right, has always um, been highly uneven, uh, and it has uh, historically also been uh, almost sort of a monopoly of the elite to travel internationally until very recently, right? Right. So, um, and this is like perhaps in the past couple of decades that uh, Andean Peruvians of sort of more modest means uh, and of, uh, who are racialized also as indigenous. Uh, uh, persons within the Peruvian context, they have now increasingly had um, or have, have acquired access to transnational mobility, but in these simultaneously very constrained ways, right? And that that is um, 
what I'm trying to do in uh, the book's second chapter. It's called uh, Paper Fixes, the Making of Mobile Subjects. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to um, analyze in, in sort of great detail all the kind of work and labor that goes into producing oneself uh, as a mobile subject, right? right because right. So sort of historically also, even to travel uh, to the United States, um, or, and even before, uh, you know, uh, before migration to the United States, but uh, with... Um, with mobility internally uh, in Latin America, you always had to sort of produce yourself as a member of the elite in order to be entitled to that kind of, of, of mobility, right? right? But for the case of, for example, uh, U.S. visas, um, even though that, you know, the, the website of the American consulate uh, in Lima says that they give out visas to people from all regional background, which is very interesting to me that they will uh, say that explicitly, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> noting, you know, these, uh, these sort of differences between uh, the Peruvian Andes and the Lima on the coast, right? Uh, then, you know, for... The truth is that for people who come from the Andean regions, they have to, they bear the burden of proof, right, of their class status and of their, um, uh, and of the way that they are racialized and, and of institutionalized racism. So in order to uh, produce themselves as someone who would be worthy uh, of a tourist visa and not a labor migrant in disguise, right? They have to um, sort of fit this profile of the urban, middle-class person who goes on vacation to the United States and right. who is definitely enough anchored in Peruvian society to be to, to convince the interviewing officer, right, that they will come back and uh, and eventually reincorporate themselves um, in uh, in Peruvian society. Mm -hmm. So um, many people from the Andes, they uh, you know they sort of historically have a very ambiguous relationship with with writing and with bureaucracy in general because it has been to their detriment <laughs> since the colonial period, right, most of the time. Right. Um, so, uh, so they often uh, ally themselves with these uh, sort of uh, migration professionals. You could all almost call them, right? What I call what I call the migration industry, which are all of these kind of people who are trying to make a profit out of helping people with visa paperwork. Uh, with they tutor them in how to comport themselves uh, in sort of regulating their affective demeanor when they go to the visa interview. It's, it's uh, really very um, interesting. And then also coach uh, potential or wannabe migrants in what are the visa types that they um, that they could try to apply for, right? So then it becomes uh, the question of whether they want to construct themselves as sort of the... the the student for an F1 visa who's going to study at a U.S. institution or right. whether they want to start themselves as a successful business person um, in Peru who's going to some sort of convention um, in, in, in the United States or even, you know, uh, there have been people who have traveled um, as, you know, members of folkloric ensembles or uh, as religious personnel, right, uh, invited by uh, by a church in the United States, etc. And of course, you know, 
uh, one can say the reason why people do this and, and engage in these kind of various forms of, of unauthorized travel is because it has to a great extent become the viable form of travel for people who, have, who are not eligible um, for the official visas because of, of structural racism and discrimination in in, 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 in in a variety of ways, right? They then have to turn to these kind of alternative forms um, of, of uh, travel. And, you know, that some, some scholars uh, who work at sort of the intersection of this, I, I prefer the, the term migration industry because I think that it sort of uh, highlights the, the, um, the complex of services mm-hmm. that facilitates migration, right? Instead of talking about it's, it's not really human trafficking because there's no element of deception right. in this, uh, in, in the traditional way that people, you know, maybe people are, you know, they're going to work for some uncle in the U.S. and they end up getting paid much less than what they thought. But it's not deception in the sense that, that scholars of, of human trafficking would have it, right? Right, right. Or not not so much the scholars, but actually the legal definition of, of human trafficking. So uh, so people really put a great deal of work and effort into uh, constructing themselves to fit these categories. And then once they have, if, if they're granted a visa, you know, then then it's like you have to perform mm-hmm. to the standards of the paperwork that you are embodying, right? So right. that that. Be- Sort of the second phase uh, of of, uh, of this travel, and then of course you know uh, sort of in the era of biometrics, this whole um, process has been much more complicated, um, and there are of course also uh, you know um, examples of uh, failed um, where um, examples of where people simply fail to live up to uh, to that identity which uh, they have constructed, which they have to perform, right, at multiple points during the process through the visa interviews at the arrival uh, at the U.S. port of entry, uh, which is always intimidating, I guess, even uh, for those of us who travel with authorization or with the visa or pass- passports or green cards, right? It, it is in itself a very intimidating experience uh, and imagine for someone who is trying to sort of validate that they are indeed representing the the documents that they are carrying right 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 well and that that aspect of performance um is what was really uh convincing for me to uh, you know in your your you're labeling this as, as an industry uh, mm-hmm. It really helped me to understand, of course, reading throughout the chapter, you know, how much coaching went involved, how much scrutiny went into uh, from the side of the broker, right, the migration mm-hmm. broker in choosing mm-hmm. what was the right type of visa and the right type of identity and performativity that this migrant could thereby inhabit and and pass, right, yeah, throughout mm-hmm. this process. It was incredibly mm-hmm. complex. Um, and, uh, you know, so in addition to just the array of services, uh, the... Uh, if I, if I, if I, if I can, right, the professional, the professionalism, um, uh, you know, that goes yeah. into, 
uh, this industry and, you know, obtaining, you know, throughout the, providing the service to these migrants is just incredibly in depth and complex. Um, mm-hmm. also on the aspect of performativity, I, th- I think we can understand this, as you've mentioned, even if this doesn't just happen to those that are, are trying to pass, if you will, um, you know, uh, the, the migration process or, or visas in, you know, without, um, you know, standard or, or legitimate type of, of documents. Uh, I was taking an undergraduate seminar a, a few, you know, quite a while ago, not too long ago, mm-hmm. but, um, we talked about this in this seminar, which is really about, uh, it was a seminar on immigration. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, we, we mentioned how even just, I grew up along the U.S. Mexico border in San Diego. And yeah. uh, before 9-11, it was you know, very frequent and very easy to cross that border. You'd just you know, jump yeah. in a car or you'd walk across it. And in this class, we discussed you know, what, would ha- what happened and, and how we acted when you were driving across the border back, you know, north mm-hmm. from Mexico, right, coming through yeah. uh, you know, the border checkpoint. Uh, you know, it was a completely different experience than when you crossed. When you crossed, everything mm-hmm. was really just, you, you just literally drove, you just literally walked. There was no real check or an inspection. On the way back, however, and this is again back in like the early to mid-90s, late 90s. Uh, mm-hmm. However, when you get to that point to where the immigration officer asks you either for identification or is checking citizenship, uh, immediately people in the car straighten up. You put your hands at 10 mm-hmm. and 2 on the steering wheel and you start Absolutely. to perform and behave what you would consider is appropriately to even pass, even if you have citizenship, right? To make sure you mm-hmm. are not, you know, scrutinized or, you know, put into secondary inspection, which actually comically happened to my family once, <laughs> uh, when we were coming back yeah. across, uh, despite the uh-huh. fact that my parents had all the documents and everything, we're all U.S. citizens and everything, uh, my dad just ended up saying something, uh, wrong. He actually admitted to having the car yeah. painted in Mexico. <laughs> and so yeah. since we had the car painted in Mexico, they then sent us to secondary where they got made us all get out of the car. And anyways, long story short, it's, he, was, uh, he was probably trying to disguise. Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, he was actually just being honest, but he learned, uh-huh. you know, after that, after that inspection, you don't tell these guys squat. Like <laughs> you don't tell them if you bought anything down there, you don't tell them if you actually got the car painted, uh, because that just opens the door for an, a heightened, you know, amount of scrutiny and suspicion um, that, uh, that that thereby yeah. creates very uncomfortable situations, you know. So uh, it was just in a very, you know, very small way, you know, reading this, uh, you know, your your, uh, you know, the narrative and and the experiences of and and how much, you know, performance performativity goes into embodying the right mm-hmm. type of actions, the right type of identity. Yeah. I could even see myself like, yes, I've had to do that also, you know, even with yeah. papers, right? Even, you know, yeah. being a lifelong citizen, you know, there is just that aspect yeah. when you're crossing that border, um, that there's a, there's a, an appropriate way to perform, uh, and behave and, yeah. and you need to inhabit that and, and produce that. Yeah. Otherwise yeah. you put yourself in risk or danger, right? Absolutely. And, and, you know, then that goes to illustrate also how, because of course the only thing that, that, uh, border officials they have is that they have they read the documents against what they see and this exactly. is why facial profiling is such uh, a, an issue right and such a real reality uh, for many people because it depends so much on how you look and how you can the, the kind of effective demeanor that you can demonstrate in that moment where you're all stressed out about performing in the right way uh, that then can come to have uh, sort of very detrimental consequences for 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 your life further on. Right? Exactly, exactly. 
it's time, so it's time we transition to the second part of the, the book, which focuses more on how the migrants stay connected and relevant in the lives of their loved ones back home. Uh, mm-hmm. This, of course, within the same theme of, um, you know, the performance and production of self. Uh, so can you mm-hmm. talk about that? Particularly, you introduced the concept of, you know, remote sensing um, mm-hmm. and, you know, transnational families. And so can you, uh, mm-hmm. you address how do these Peruvian migrants do this? How do they stay connected? How do they stay relevant to children, to family members, etc.? cetera? Yeah. Uh, I mean, they try to, uh, and again, I, I shall say that, that I try to focus in this uh, chapter and the one that follows also, which focuses more on visual uh, communication, but I focus on all the labor that goes into producing uh, and reproducing social relationships across borders, right? So for many of the migrants that I work with in the book, uh, they migrated and particularly, but well, both the, the, the men and the women, but in particularly the women, uh, uh, who left children behind that came to be sort of a very defining, uh, part of their experience as migrants in the U.S., right? And they did everything they could, uh, especially in their early years or in the first couple of years after migration to stay in contact, right, with, uh, with the children that they had left behind and with the relatives uh, who had custody over those children um, in their absence. So uh, one of the things uh, that I try to um, focus on is how how uh, the sort of lived experience of communicating across borders pans out, right? And I also want to make an intervention into um, sort of debates uh, that, um, that, perhaps sometimes have a little bit of optimism around communication technologies, right? That saying, oh, you know, even though that um, that uh, it's hard to be away from your family, the fact that we have Skype and we have all of these other technologies mean that people can stay in contact as ever before, right? And right. what I'm arguing here in the book is that, yes, people can stay in contact uh in more dense um, and more frequent ways than ever before, but that is not necessarily a good thing, and it definitely not ameliorate some of the sort of profound experience of loss that both parents and children uh, on either side of the border they feel as a consequence of migration. Right. right. So, so I'm saying, you know, yes communication technology, it, it does um, change the everyday experience of being away from your relatives and from your family members, uh, but it doesn't sort of ameliorate the, 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 the emotional and social consequences of that separation. Right. And, and then... Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, I was just going to say, and, and so can you address how, again, so how, even with these, these new communicative, uh, technologies, uh, whether they be Skype, you, you use, uh, you talk a lot of, of the production of videos in three different particular types of, uh, you know, genres or videos that are produced, um, by, uh, Andean migrants and sent home and, and how they have specific functions. But, um, can you speak to the, the aspect of, again, uh, performativity and self and identity that goes into those communications, right? How one has yeah. to perform appropriately in order to try to, you know, establish or maintain these relationships despite, uh, you know, across transnational space. Yes, 
yes, absolutely. And I, I'm sorry, I also I realized that I didn't, you know, you were asking about that concept of remote sensing, which mm-hmm. I use. And of course, it's, um, it's a concept that comes from, from geography, uh, and it refers to sort of this acquisition uh, of information about an object or a phenomena on the Earth through this technological mediation. And I'm using it to show how um, migrant parents, for example, they attempt to know something or sense something about an object of desire, in this case a child, right, from from afar, um, through this uh, process of technological um, mediation. And that is, uh, you know, not only Skype, but also, you know, phone contact and the circulation of uh, videos, uh, both online and um, at the time that I started this research, people were still circulating uh, video tapes. Now they're circulating video files, right? But but uh, when I started this work, they were still uh, circulating the actual physical tape. And I think one of the interesting things about um, the circulation of the visual is that sort of the indexical quality of the image, right? The image will always attempt to claim the status of truth, right? Mm -hmm, (laughs) So mm -hmm. people often think that if they have seen something, then it must be right. So in the context, for example, of uh, migrant, collective migrant remittances, when when migrants abroad, they send donations back home, it became uh, to, to, you know, help the local football team or to put new benches in the church or to you know, repair the roof of the municipality in this rural um, community of origin, whatever it was, um, you know, in order to um, to sort of uh, make sure that the money was used for uh, or destined for the project that it was actually given uh, for, they would sometimes require that um, sort of local politicians would send videos uh, of the completed works uh, to to the migrant organization in the U.S. and in this way uh, sort of have the visual proof that, that these collective remittances have actually um, been used appropriately, right? right. But, but then these videos, they also circulate in, in a more intimate sphere uh, in the form of video letters um, between relatives, uh, and that those uh, and also you know again it was often actually connected to uh, the use of remittances so sometimes uh, you know uh, relatives back home they would uh, shoot sort of little bits of video to show that you know they had they were in the process of completing that home extension or home improvement project that they had received money to do by the migrant abroad. Um, or that they had bought the present for uh, for the children that they had received remittances to do to do um, and all those, that sort of thing. And then in the book, I also have um, this uh, one um, uh, case of uh, of one migrant who went back to be the sort of sponsor of the of the patron saint fiesta fiesta or festival in the right. in the community um, and uh, and uh, he had also circulated these um, these videos in order of course to bolster his uh, his uh, 
legitimacy and his social status and his capital within this transnational community of migrants. But then there was also issues with him, his wife did not go, and then, you know, he was dancing with this other paisana, and that came out on the video. So there were also all these sort of uh, aspects of mm -hmm. trying to edit out things that you didn't want others to see. Uh, so what I'm saying is that, you know, greater connectivity does not necessarily lead to sort of a more fluid and transparent communication, but it forces migrants and, and their relatives who are left behind in, in the home country to be more and more aware of how they perform uh, right, and right. how their, they construct their identities uh, and the, 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 the sort of self-making via these various uh, forms of technologies and, and the circulation of images that they generate. Yes, you know, and just as you're explaining it to me, uh, you know, again here, it's it just sounds so exhausting. <laughs> and, and I'm talking about this aspect of, pro of performativity where, you know, they're mm -hmm. having to perform appropriately in whatever local context it is. So whether they are, uh, you know, here in the, the receiving region or community, whether it's, so it's, say it's Patterson, mm -hmm. New Jersey, and either they're yeah. at work or they're within the home that they're staying in, there's multiple mm -hmm. levels of how they are expected to perform and they're trying to meet those expectations to, again, you know, uh, you know, um, operate fluidly and, and safely through these spaces. And then that, that but that doesn't end even within the, the most personal and uh, strong connections of loved ones back home. There is still the aspect of performing appropriately and, you know, the whole issue of, you know, surveillance that you bring up within this, uh, you know, these discussions of these videos and, um, and how that connects to, you know, how uh, one is expected to perform um, appropriately, it's again. It just sounds. Um, it, it's just exhausting. You know, um, <laughs> emotionally, I, I, myself, I, I feel you know drained just trying to just you know reading through it and listening to it and trying to understand what that is like. Um, you, and in essence, it seems like these migrants always have to be on, right? Uh, you know, that spotlight is always on them, regardless of the public or private space they are in and who they're communicating with. To again produce themselves in ways that are, uh, you know, received the way that they would like them to be. Absolutely. And, and that, that, that is, of course, I mean, that is the key idea in the book as a whole, because then in the, in the following chapter, in chapter five, which is about um, public performances in public spaces mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, in Patterson, New Jersey, which is sort of one of the early uh, areas of Peruvian migration uh, to the northeast. They do this um, Peruvian parade every year, um, right. and that is, of course, sort of in the spirit of uh, of, um, of um, ethnic parades in the U.S. But it has that same sense of of having to perform according to uh, these various standards and evaluations, right? So even the, the the organizing committee, what always called my attention was that there was this high level of anxiety around how to represent what would then be taken by others to mean the, the Peruvian community right. in the U.S., right? So mm -hmm. there, there, that's also another um, situation in which you see this sort of pressure to perform according uh, to these norms, whether... These norms are like a particular way of being Peruvian um, and, and uh, a, a sort of a, 
folklorized uh, um, element uh, of a larger uh, U.S. Latino group or whether it is to sort of perform yourself as the docile, hardworking, uh, property-owning, successful uh, Latino immigrant, right, which is kind of the other archetype that is at play at these public events, um, but, but, but sort of the essence of having to perform according to those standards in a given setting are, are the same in that chapter for, for public events. Yes, and what I found fascinating in that chapter particularly is you discussed how, um, you know, the, the folkloric, like, you know, if labeled folkloric, like performances of, you know, Andean uh, migrants in this parade does two things. It mm-hmm. both, you know, right, claims space and membership for themselves uh, in a positive way as Peruvians. So they are mm-hmm. inserting and claiming space, you know, as part of that those larger tropes, they're inserting, right, their identities and themselves and saying, this is also Mm -hmm. Peruvian. And at the same time, being a parade that's performed within the context of a, you know, suburb in the United States, uh, that they are also claiming membership uh, in that community as well. So they are legitimizing themselves in essence and being truly as a transnational subject, but as part of a transnational community, um, you know, as a a citizen and a representative of what it means to be Peruvian, but then also Mm -hmm. as someone that has the, you know, claim of being where they are and doing what they're doing, you Mm -hmm. know, working, living in the United States. Yes. So, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, so it has this kind of dual, um, dual aspect uh, to it, and and of course it's interesting because uh, with the whole folklore performance, uh, it's also kind of a so it's a way to assert sort of a specificity within a sort of larger understanding of genericness of a Latino identity in the mm-hmm. U.S. Right. Um, on one hand, but then it's also like how to perform these uh, this Andean folklore uh, while at the same time stripping it off the social condition of the Indian, right? Because mm. that's something that they definitely do not want right. to be seen at. Right? Right. So by right. all means, uh, they have to uh, perform these folkloric dances in a highly stylized way that kind of strips off any connotation uh, that could link them to sort of a, a backwards or rural background, as it were. Yes, and that's, you know, a strong undercurrent throughout the, the whole book. Is that connection between, uh, you know, the production of self and, and, and being modern? Uh, you mm-hmm. addressed early in the book, you know, the, the, transgress- the transgressiveness of Andean mobility and that um, you know, that sense, this historical sense of them, of the Indian being out of place in urban settings. Yeah. And this is something that is, uh, you know, in perhaps in the back of the mind of these migrants, right, as they are imagining initially, or not at the back, but at the forefront of their mind as they are imagining the initial, you know, um, taking the first steps of, you know, entering this migratory stream. Uh, the production of self is how to cast off the rurality, right, to how to cast off the poverty, um, you know, and to become modern, to be, you know, to become, uh, you know, to become modern is to become worthy in a way, um, yeah. you know, of being a part of this migratory stream. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and so we're, let's, let's touch on the, the sixth chapter too. This kind of, the, this is part of the, um, there's a conclusion also, but the sixth chapter is along the same theme of, 
migrants claiming uh, citizenship and belonging, uh, both in sending and receiving nations and as part of being transnational subjects. What I found really interesting in Chapter 6 is your discussion of, of how this process of being uh, – uh, and the experience of being a transnational migrant can actually um, – politicize and actually politicize one to be more active and engaged in politics back at home. So in, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the sending community, whether it's in, um, uh, you know, then, and, and, you know, the Andean region or an urban setting in, in Lima, um, can, but can you t- discuss that? You bring about the concept of, you know, phantom citizen, citizenship. So can you explain mm-hmm. that and how, citizens throughout this process and experience of migration actually become more activists, more involved, more empowered uh, to make a difference back at home? Yes, um, absolutely. So uh, since, uh, I would say, around the 2000s, uh, the Peruvian government, they uh, have begun in different ways to reach out, quote-unquote, to Peruvian communities abroad. Um, And partly, I mean, that's due to a variety of reasons, but one of the reasons is that um, since uh, there there is uh, dual citizenship or dual nationality law in place in Peru since the mid-1990s, Peruvians uh, are still uh, not only um, able to vote in Peruvian national elections, but they are also uh, obligated to do so. Mm. So for the Peruvian uh, government, the foreign vote is actually pretty significant in national elections, so they have sort of a very clear incentive to reach out to Peruvians abroad as sort of an an immigrant population who are still connected uh, to their country of origin. So that is one reason uh, why the government has... um, has uh, sort of continuously since the 2000s reached out uh, to Peruvians abroad. The other uh, reason is, of course, also the importance of remittances uh, and sort of trying to figure out ways of capitalizing on migrant remittances uh, for the because of its prominent role uh, in the national economy. And then also just simply the sheer number of migrants. Uh, Peruvians have been one of the sort of growing, uh, um, the fastest growing Latino groups in the U.S. Uh, and Peruvians are also migrating to other places. Uh, but currently about 10% uh, of the Peruvian uh, population live abroad, which is quite significant. Mm-hmm. So it is, uh, it is of a, a concern um, to the Peruvian state. However, uh, when the state talks about incorporating um, the, the, the Peruvians abroad in the sort of national, this national imaginary uh, that they call el quinto suyo, and that comes from, uh, from the term Tiwanting Suyu, which was the Inca term for, for the four regions of the Inca Empire. So el quinto suyo is like the fifth region of migrants abroad. Mm-hmm. but tying it to sort of this notion of the Inca Empire, right? <clears throat> right. Uh, it's extending beyond Peru's borders. Um, so when they interpolate uh, Peruvians abroad as members of the Quinto Suyo, they're not necessarily thinking of the migrants that are protagonists in this book, right, who are sort of the disenfranchised labor migrants um, of Andean origin. But then... Uh, these migrants uh, who are the protagonists of, of this book, they try to find ways to insert themselves in these 
ongoing debates of citizenship in Peru. And so in, the, in this chapter, I start out the chapter with um, giving this vignette uh, about um, uh, um, lynching in uh, the public square of one of the communities that I work in. And, you know, to, to make a long story short, um, some of the local authorities were taken to court because uh, two of these uh, cattle thieves died in the process. Um, and then they ended up mobilizing help to pay for the expenses for the court process from migrant relatives abroad. And so um, for the migrants abroad, the, the fact of, of uh, helping out and being able to help out economically uh, these local authorities of the community, right, uh, against the central state. That was a major, um, uh, sort of, it, it gave them a major sense of empowerment, right, to be able to challenge the state at this level because they were saying, well, we have been left abandoned here in Andean communities for uh, decades, if not centuries, uh, and then, um, then you know, we have all these issues, and the police do, does not show up on until they come and they want to put us into prison for taking justice in their own hands. Right? Mm -hmm. that, that was it. Uh, and then they were able to actually pay for lawyers to defend their local authorities against the state. Right? And that was a very powerful. Uh, experience for people who have been marginalized as political subjects within their own country, right? So what I'm trying to say is that these, these uh, sort of transnational flows of capitals in various forms, right, also influence and shape the way that people can position themselves ultimately as national subjects in the context of origin. Right. And those are just, those are fascinating examples. And, uh, you know, particularly the one that you mentioned there about the, you know, this, um, the, the, the lynching that occurred and then, you know, how that evolved and, you know, the group of migrants that were, um, you know, responsible for, you know, paying for a bulk of the legal fees, uh, mm -hmm. for, you know, the defense, uh, you know, back home mm -hmm. and, um, and whatnot. So that was just, again, just another, you know, the, the book is filled with a, a bunch of fascinating, I think, examples and, and case studies and, uh, both the, that are rooted, uh, you know, on, you know, specific experiences of the people, you know, um, you know, and this process of migration and their experience between it. So I, I thank you so much for you know, taking time out of your busy schedule to, to come on, uh, New Books and Latino Studies and, and discuss mobile cells. Uh, our, as we wrap up the interview, uh, one of our, our the traditionally our, our closing question is, giving you an opportunity to talk about what it is you're working on now. I know you have other projects that I read that you're involved in, uh, you know, you're, you're a filmmaker also. You, I know you also run, I think the Latino studies Institute at Rutgers. Is that correct? It's so a know, Center for Latin American studies, but, but I am a faculty in the department of gotcha. Latino and Caribbean studies. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what it is you're working on now as we wrap things up today? Sure, absolutely. So I'm currently working um, on two new uh, multi-year research projects. And the first one, I think, is kind of uh, probably uh, uh, emblematic of where um, many migration scholars end up these days, which is <laughs> that we end up working on immigrant detention and deportation simply uh, mm -hmm. 
as a result of uh, of how the the, the current um, uh, uh, political climate has unfolded in the United States. So I'm working now on a new book. Uh, it's tentatively titled, titled Buddies in Confinement, Migration, Immobility, and the U.S. Deportation Industry. And in that book, I'm trying to look at sort of the underside of migration, right, which, which is, uh, I should say, failed migration. Because in, the, mm-hmm. in this book that we've just talked about, I spend a lot of time talking about how people perform in order to produce their own mobility, right? Right. Uh, and the, the tension and deportation is kind of uh, almost the immediate consequence of a failure of producing yourself as a mobile subject, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm doing uh, research uh, in detention centers uh, in New Jersey, um, and and um, and also uh, with people, uh, former migrants who have been deported back to uh, Peru and Ecuador. And I'm currently also looking to expand uh, to Colombia, um, where I will be doing uh, interviews. I've already started the project and the research is ongoing, but uh, I'm doing interviews with uh, people who have been uh, who have spent time in detention in the U.S. and who have then been deported. And then I'm looking at how are they faring when they come back? What are some of the challenges that they encounter, et cetera, et cetera? Um, so that that is uh, that is one project. Um, and then I'm also working on a second uh, research project, which kind of sounds. Uh, very different, uh, but I like to think of it as as interconnected also, um, and that is a project that kind of attempts to study power power and inequality, but from above, in quotation, um, and I'm, I'm looking there to, um, uh, to examine the intersection of race with the distribution of various other forms of capital uh, in the, the changing character of proven inequality, so that project focuses on sort of uh, elite Peruvians of Andean uh, origins. Uh, the title, the uh, project is tentatively titled Todos Somos Cholos, All the New Elites in Neoliberal Peru. And I'm looking at, mm-hmm. in that project, I'm, I'm looking at sort of the rise of the much-touted figure of the entrepreneurial cholo, right? The, the person who did not migrate or is a they did it um, not permanently, uh, but in order to acquire wealth in Peru um, and accommodate themselves uh, in Peruvian society. But then I'm interested in in how these um, uh, uh, Peruvian sort of a considerable economic wealth still um, have not been exempt from racism and adverse forms of discrimination because they trace their origin to the Peruvian Andes, right? right so right. I look at how affluency is also structured along the lines of race uh, and, and other forms of uh, affective and, 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 and cultural capital. And so that's my... Uh, my uh, second research project. And then I'm working to finish a film that I've been working with for a very long time uh, on the Peruvian poet, uh, Domingo de Ramos, who's a very interesting figure. Um, uh, he's an amazing poet, and I've been following his work uh, and his life for uh, over a decade, uh, and I've known him for over two decades. Um, and he's also the sort of example of 
an incredibly talented artist, but because of his uh, background, tracing his route to the Peruvian Andes, he was never able to break into the sort of high-class culture in Lima. Uh, however, his work has been revindicated abroad, uh, you know, in, in multiplicity of places in Europe, in other places in Latin America, but not in Peru because of sort of the entrenched um, uh, uh, um, racism, right, of Peruvian right. society. Mm-hmm. So, so these are the things that keep me busy. Well, and it's fascinating to hear of you know the how the you know the connections, the intersections of you know race and, and class and migration, or, you know, just underlie your work. And it's something I very much appreciated in this book. And your those three projects all sound fascinating. So I'll look forward to um, looking uh, and, and uh, seeing when they come out. That's great. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you again uh, for your time. It was I just had a great time talking about your book, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I did too, absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for tuning in to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and I hope you've enjoyed my conversation today with Ula Burke, author of Mobile Selves, Race, Migration, and Belonging in Peru and the U.S., published by New York University Press in 2015. We encourage you to grab a copy of Dr. Berg's book, and you may do so by following the link to Amazon on the page of this podcast. Also, you may subscribe to our podcast, New Books and Latino Studies, through iTunes or Stitcher, or feel free to contact us by either sending us an email to newbooksandlatinostudies at gmail.com or connecting with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you.